Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we're speaking with Gardner Girard, a founding partner of TTV Capital, an early stage venture fund out of Atlanta, Georgia, that invests in fintech businesses. Gardner, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to talk to you in particular because you invest in fintech, and that's a very particularly active area in venture these days. Maybe to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you went into venture and how you went into venture? I wouldn't really characterize it as a traditional path. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, and went to school at University of North Carolina and was not a science, math, computer science major. Got out of school and I moved to Atlanta and I jumped into this sales job just because he didn't have to pay me anything. So he's willing to hire me right out of college and immediately fell in love with investing. And it was 1994. And I don't know if you remember the Netscape IPO. Sure. It was really, and I jokingly tell people, I'm halfway joking, but that there was a lot of greed and envy in me that got me into the venture capital business because I watched Netscape go crazy and I didn't understand it. I didn't really know what the internet was. And I began to invest in stocks that were running up during the 90s because of the internet and because of this kind of technology revolution. And so by the end of the decade, I had been making some angel investments and I was coming out of business school at Emory University, and I had people trying to give me money because it was, of course, because it was 98, 99, just to invest. And so I started TTV. I started my own venture capital firm largely because there was no one that was going to hire me. I didn't have a background for it. And I started my own firm and raised you know, $38 million in 1999, about six months before the world blew up. So I, I got very lucky that probably could have done that fund in 97. And then I wouldn't be here today because it would have blown up and been terrible. And then I'd waited six to nine more months, I probably wouldn't have been able to raise it. Where does the name come from? Our anchor investor that made it possible for us was Sonova's Financial Corp. And at the time they owned a big payment processor that at the time was called Total System Services. It's now part of Global Payments, but it then became TSIS. And so they were our largest investor in the first fund. And they owned, even owned a piece of the management company uh, when we got started. And the CEO at the time Jimmy Blanchard, I remember him asking me, he said, hey, is there any way we can use the word total in the name? Because they had total system services and they really wanted to do more venture investing and payment technology investing. And so he said, can we use the name total? And I said, you know, for $25 million, I'll call it whatever you want. (laughs) So we called it Total Technology Ventures. And then nobody wanted to say that much. And so everybody just started calling us TTV. TTV. That makes sense. How did that first fund do? Because we had raised the fund in, I think, early 2000. And that fund ended up doing really well, actually, because obviously you had the nuclear winter in venture from about mid-2000 until about 2003-04. But that was actually a great time to invest because you were picking up companies at very attractive prices, right? Yes. And I, I had some notion of that at the time, but brand new to it. And I think in hindsight, that was an advantage as well, because we didn't have any triage going on within any existing portfolio companies. We were just looking for all new deals. And in fact, that fund ended up on a gross basis was an 8X fund. And it was a smaller fund, 
but we did 12 investments and we made money on nine of them. And so it was an interesting start to the venture because I think five, six years into it, I probably had some false correlations. We did as a firm, Tom Smith was my partner. So when I said I started TTV, probably the biggest thing that happened to me after Sonovas saying they'd back it was a guy named Tom Smith to join in. And he had been a seasoned executive at IBM and he brought a lot of maturity and experience to the firm. But we may have had some false correlations, but we just didn't realize how much tailwind we had in financial services at the time. If you think 2000, 2007, and we didn't realize how lucky we had been in terms of buying low, selling high. So I was like, I, I may be like the greatest venture capitalist that's ever been. <laughs> I was like, what is this third, a third? What are they talking about? I was like, we make money on every deal. And in some ways that skewed me probably falsely for a number of years, because it took me almost 15 years to get to where, or maybe 10 I really did learn more about asset allocation in the fund and feeding the winners and letting the losers go. And I got used to not having deals go under. And then we had what I call the mean reversion in 2008, (laughs) which is when all of a sudden in fintech. Fintech was a tough space to be in back then. We got killed and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what it was. I was like, I was in some foreign country and I didn't know what language they were speaking. I was like, what's happening? (laughs) But, you know, it's part of the maturing process, I think. And I tell a lot of the people that invest with us now, you look at fund one and it's, wow, this was the top performing vintage 2000 fund in the country. And then you look at fund two, which did all right, you get a bit of money back, but it wasn't a you know, big winner. And you, you think, oh, you must you really want to invest because of what went on in fund one, but we really got smart in fund two. And that's when I really learned the business. And what led to your love of the fintech space? It's all I knew. I, I think I've had every hourly paying job you can have at a bank. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, and it was a textile town historically, but now it's a financial services town. It's Aflac, Tesis, Synovus, and they were all our big early sponsors and supporters along with Check Free. And like I said before, I wasn't really a technology guy. And I still don't call myself a technology person. I'm not a computer scientist. I'm, I'm good around in that arena. I think I'm more of a business person and a lot more focused on companies that are just leveraging those technologies. I think what happened in 2000 was almost a paradigm shift from the 30 years where the infrastructure of technology was being built, You know, whether it was Intel or Microsoft or large telecoms, and you got internet laid or Wi-Fi and GPS and mobile. And then around 2000, it became more about applications where you were modernizing different products and services in different industries. I think 2000 is media entertainment and advertising. When I look back, it's Google and then you have Facebook and Twitter and these kinds of things. And so at the time, I didn't know anything about media and entertainment. I didn't know anything about healthcare. I didn't know anything about manufacturing, but I knew how to run a bank. I mean, I knew how banks operated and I knew how payment processors worked. And I knew a bit about the insurance and it was not just like, I wasn't an expert. I didn't know you could make money if you weren't in financial services being from Columbus. It was like, that's what everybody did. So I just had this knowledge or confidence around the market. And I think the really big deal that set the stage for us was when we seeded Green Dot. And that ended up being a big winner for us. And it just wasn't complicated. It was like, hey, I can sell this checking account, but I can sell it at the retail location. And the reason I can do that is because now we've got this MasterCard network or a Visa network. We've got the internet, we've got this ATM network, we've got electronic point of sale systems. It's, we don't need branches to sell a DDA account. And we can just sell it here on this card and we can sell it at the point of sale. And it just was this, oh my God, I didn't have to go build electronic payment rails. I didn't have to build the internet. 
didn't have to build the ATM network. All we had to do is build the soft application that sat on top of it. So it's what I've always known was banking and payments. Right. I think reinforcing it was just where we got all our money. So tell us a little bit about the strategy of the fund and, and thesis. There's a great book called Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital. And it's written by an economist by the name of Carlotta Perez. And when I read it, it was like this goosebump aha moment. Because she talked about how money's made in societies. And there's been like these five big periods of technology revolutions in the past 300 years. And it's kind of industrial revolution and then railroad and then steel and then transportation. And now what we're in now, digital age, which started, call it 1971. And in the first 30 years, you get the whole, you get all the roads and ports and airports or the railroad laid or the infrastructure laid. And then it's in the next 30 years that you have the deployment period and all the money gets made in the deployment period. So like in the installation phase, you get the automobile industry gets created from nothing or railroad from nothing or technology from nothing. And it becomes three, four, 5% of GDP, which from zero to there is a big deal. But in that deployment period, it's the other 97% of GDP that gets disrupted and modernized. And so we don't really look for like new demands or new needs in financial services. We just look at as we've seen this progression of new technologies with everything being the internet when we started, then cloud and SaaS, and then mobile, and then big data, and then machine learning, and then AI, and then blockchain, and I think soon quantum computing. As these new technologies come along, you just have more modern ways to build applications. Our strategy really has just been to find entrepreneurs that knew a lot about the particular businesses that they were trying to solve without necessarily having to be experts on the underlying commoditized technology. Once the technology is mature enough, you know, then we can use that technology to deliver a product or service in a more efficient, more modern, more profitable way. So it sounds simple, but we have liked that. My partner likes that. We spend a lot of time now in payments and banking because it's where we have relationships. It's what we understand the most. And we fund applications that use these modern technologies to address large existing demand that's being dealt with poorly. And I can give some examples if you want that. Yeah. Is there a particular area of fintech that maybe you can talk about and talk about your thesis in that area? So I gave you kind of the generalist, like, here's what we do in fintech, but then we do have verticals like security or blockchain or, or crypto. We've done a lot around the SMB marketplace, or we might, but the one that I've enjoyed lately is like off the back of this democratization of technology, how at one point in time, only big companies could get this quality software and then it became medium sized and small businesses. We really have been focused a lot. My partner coined this. I don't know if he read it somewhere, but he started talking about household as an enterprise, like probably five, six, seven years ago. Maybe the next small business is the home. And it's so wired now and you can deliver everything in so easy. And how are they doing things that are somewhat antiquated relative to how businesses operate when it comes to financial services? One of our best performing companies today is off the back of that thesis. That's this company called Greenlight. And it's a simple thing. It was just like, hey, parents are still paying allowances with cash. And that, that was the premise, right? The basic. But then when you really go further on it, they're using like cookie jars and charts on the kitchen, on the refrigerator to teach financial literacy. Like here's your spend jar, here's your save jar, here's your give jar. And every kid's got a smartphone. So Greenlight, I think, has really been a testament to this household as an enterprise thesis around the simplest in payments is find places where people are still using cash or checks. <laughs> it's not hard. If they're still using cash and checks, you're like, I know for a fact we can do it better. And so that's been a place where we've really enjoyed it. We're about to seed a company out in LA, I'm really excited about that has an app for divorced couples on how they manage their finances. 
you know, how they handle reconciling who's paid for what outside of the traditional alimony. Finding places where people are still without the tools they need to manage money digitally. It's such an easy place for digitization because every product's virtual. It's one thing if you're talking about trying to go in and use things in manufacturing, but every single thing in financial services is a virtual product, much like the way entertainment was or marketing, advertising. The only difference with the world that they came out of is that financial services, and if you include retail, you know, it's 15 times bigger. So I think that's why it's so in vogue right now. It's just because people have recognized how big it is, how ubiquitous it is. What are some of your other predictions for the fintech industry over the next couple of years? Well, I would say that what we've had is an unbundling going on. And I don't know if we've hit the peak of that yet. And what I mean by that is traditional financial services, we saw an aggregation where we got culminated in Citigroup. Just every single thing you could imagine that in financial services. And that was in the traditional financial services. And that might've been where it peaked out. And then as technologies come along, we've been unbundling it. So you've had companies like Robinhood or Acorn or Chime or Greenlight or Green Dot. It's just going one product at a time, unbundling it. And I think we're getting close to the precipice of the unbundling. And then I think you'll see in the same way we saw traditional financial services aggregate into one deal. I think we're going to be into that. 10 years from now, there'll be a half a dozen brand name large fintechs that have really aggregated all of these products back underneath one system so that everybody does have this trusted relationship with this one-stop shop. And the candidates order PayPal or Square, and but Amazon's trying to be there and Walmart's trying to be there. Which I don't think Bank of America, JP Morgan, City, Wells Fargo are going anywhere. We've actually sold a lot of technology to them over the years. They, they continue to adopt. And do you find that the fintech companies can grow up anywhere? Or is it mostly California and New York? What's your experience? We're doing a voice here, but if I, if I had a screen, I'd show you a slide of where all our companies are. And you'd see very quickly, they, anywhere. I don't know that the core technology that the applications are going to be built on can come about anywhere, at least in information technology. So much of that is concentrated in a few markets. But building the applications on top of it, absolutely anywhere. I got one in Whitefish, Idaho right now. That's, it's a machine learning company, but they're using machine learning to do digital behavioral analytics on somebody who's filling out an application. And they can actually watch your keystrokes and the mouse movements and pretty quickly determined without any backdrop against any, you know, comparing anybody else, just how your movements are going, that you're either a legit customer or you're potentially a fraudulent customer or a bot. And is that because there's expertise around the applications in fintech anywhere? Or is it because people are just now realize they can work on it in an industry that is so digitally driven, they can work from anywhere? I think the founders realize they can work anywhere they want and they can access the technology skills as needed almost on an on-demand way. They don't have to be the source of innovation for machine learning to leverage machine learning in an application that addresses a problem that's not that complicated. On the one hand, it is, but it's just, hey, look, there's hundreds of thousands of digital applications being filled out, filled out every day. There's fraud in all of them. They have extensive waterfalls to prevent the fraud, but the longer the application, the more drop-off. And then vice versa, the shorter the application, the less drop-off. So it's if you could tell within 30 seconds whether it was a real customer or not, you could decide if you wanted to bring them in the back door like you're at a nightclub quick as their special VIP, 
or do you want to make them go through two or three different hurdles? But it's in Whitefish, Montana, and it's where the founder wants to live. And he has a number of his core team members living there too, but he has a lot remote. And I think we'll see even more remote um, state and obvious after COVID. There was a wonderful article in Bloomberg Business Week a couple of weeks ago, just about the rural America, like how good COVID's going to be for rural America. That was really neat, especially if taxes go the way people think. And you got high taxes in, in certain states and certain cities. I could see a lot of these, a lot of the uh, companies having people that move to the suburbs or move more rural and, and then work more remote. Right. And you guys are based in Atlanta. So talk to us a little bit about the Atlanta startup ecosystem. Look, we've always had a really rich ecosystem for entrepreneurship and innovation. Yep. We've had our last three or four four governors have technology has been in the top three initiatives for them. We have amazing research universities like Georgia Tech, Emory, University of Georgia. We have uh, the airport, Delta. Like people say, where do you invest? I'll say anywhere that Delta flies, it speaks English. And that's like everywhere. It's a lot of places you can go. We have probably one of the top five cities for Fortune 500 headquarters. For whatever reason, we've struggled with since the day Tom Smith and I started TTD is in many ways, we don't have a lot of local capital and we still don't. I mean, it's crazy. There's four firms here. Now, to the point earlier, people are investing all over. And I can remember there were days where we'd have conversations with the likes of Sequoia or Kleina Perkins, and they would say, we don't invest east of the Rockies. And that's not the case anymore. We're not really an Atlanta-focused firm. We're a banking payments technology focused firm, more even more than fintech, because we don't do a ton in insurance. We don't do a ton in capital markets. But I would tell you that Atlanta, without a doubt, is the worldwide leading market for payments. And we're processing in the state of Georgia, 70% of the world's credit, debit, and prepaid cards. And it's global payments, it's first data, it's World Oral Pay, Elevon, Global Payments, Tesis, and it's a real hub and spoke play where I could show you a map of the United States and our deals are all spread out, but I could draw a line back to Atlanta on every one of them. Right. We funded a company out of the UK in London. They were thinking about opening an office in Charlotte because that's just where all the banks were. They were selling this machine learning for credit card fraud prevention. And within two, three months of us having been invested and we had them in with Global Payments and with Tesis and with WorldPay, the founder who was living in Cambridge, England, moved to Atlanta, Georgia. The thing about Atlanta is when it comes to fintech, I, I think we're one of the you know top five markets in the country. Definitely. And what's your typical ticket size and, and how many companies do you think you'll fund out of Fund 5? So, so in terms of the stage, so we invest, like we do Series Seed and Series A. And the amount is anywhere from one to three million. So it's a hundred and twenty-seven million dollar fund, and intention is to do twenty deals. What's your perspective on international opportunities? We've seen a lot of companies that are trying to help people at the edges, the unbanked, or internationally. You have people that are poor and they don't have access to a lot of these services. And a lot of people have been pioneering these kind of businesses that can have a lot of impact in some countries. What's your perspective on all of that? We're a big fan of, you know, underserved markets, but I think we come at it. I'll give you three different ways. One, we're funding a company now, got a term sheet signed that is building this digital Ellis Allen. So it's more for immigrants in the U.S. Now they're, they're focused a lot with building relationships with consulates and other countries where people are moving here, that it's meant to be a platform for learning and for access to all the things you need with real focus on financial services. And then take a company like Greenlight, 
we're, we're not going to go chasing, we don't think, direct consumers in other countries, but we are going to license the software and enable banks around the world to be able to do what we do. So there's a real strategy to go offer what we built for the U.S. for banks in other countries. And then we're, and we're looking at another company right now that is a more of a media publication company that's selling gaming into Africa. And it's interesting to see the, how low the penetration is and how much the demand is. But the thing that's holding them back is payments. They don't have a good way to collect the payments. That's a deal we're looking at where it doesn't look as much like a payment company, but the company has actually built a platform that enables all of the local payment solutions to reconcile with the traditional payment solutions of the publishers of the, of the gaming products. We like companies that, that have the opportunity to go expand globally, but we're not big enough to think that we're going to go try to fund companies that are incorporated in Southeast Asia or sure. in Europe or Africa. We actually find a lot of underserved, believe it or not, in this country, there's still a, a fair amount of, particularly around credit, there are more payday lenders in the United States than there are McDonald's and Starbucks combined. That's ridiculous. So like we funded a company in Atlanta called Instant, which gives workers daily access to their wages. We think that's a good way to help them avoid having to go borrow you know, money when they can just access it with, for no cost. You mentioned crypto briefly, and what's your perspective on the promise of blockchain technology in the fintech space in the long term? Long term, I think it's similar to the internet or cloud computing or mobile. I think it's going to be a platform for which many really killer apps can be built on top of it once it matures and once people really understand it. The premise of how it addresses security where it's decentralized and it's transparent. So there's nothing to steal. It's a public record versus private and networked and stored in one place. I think those are real brilliant breakthroughs on perhaps how you architect a financial system in the U.S. without so many middlemen between the buyer and the seller. And I think that has a long runway. Now, in terms of our thesis, I would say that this is a gold rush. We've really been more people trying to sell picks and shovels. So we haven't jumped in, and I wish we had, but we didn't jump in and buy a lot of the crypto assets. We haven't been a lot about investing in underlying blockchain technologies, but we have funded several companies that one that BitPay that enables merchants to accept crypto and enables a consumer to load crypto onto a MasterCard. We've got one called Verity that is visualized. You need a bank statement for a blockchain. Some guys out of Georgia Tech that built this verification and reconciliation tools so that they can have an algorithm that'll you know, audit any blockchain key. And you, you just get the public key and they can tell you what the balance is on it. And then we have one out in Texas that's doing tax liabilities. We own short-term, long-term capital gains tax on it, depending. Many of these exchanges, even retailers, wallets, they all need to be able to distribute to their customers what their tax liability is. So now we're going to switch over to our four standard question segment, and this is just a way for us to get to know you better. So for our first question, if you could have a magic wand and change or improve something about the VC industry, what would it be and why? You know, I do love the business. I don't really have a lot of complaints, but if I could change one thing, I think it would probably be some kind of tempering of the egos that exist. I don't don't know. Somehow or another, I was raised with this humility as a value or an asset. And I think that a lot of people in the venture business do let it go to their heads when they have these oftentimes smarter, brighter individuals or more creative individuals who are coming in and, you know, selling them to try to raise money from them. And somehow or another, I think they start thinking that maybe they're just must be that smart that all these people. So I, I guess I could raise one magic wand. It would just be behavior could be more just handshake 
and agree to do a deal and not so Machiavellian all the time. That is what annoys me probably about the business. Yeah. We'll see in a good deal, especially in a good deal. When things start going well, it's like piranhas in a fish tank. <laughs> I hear you. Big it goes or never so fun. So. Wave a wand to let everybody just be <laughs> chill. Chill. Civil. Yep. So humble. Mm-hmm. Humble and civil around and not act like the only reason the company worked was because they've invested. That's probably the only thing I can think of that bothers me about the industry. Okay. The second question is if you were not a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? That's an easy one. And I would be a producer in the entertainment industry, probably you know, making movies or something. Awesome. I, I what sort of genre? Oh, probably sci-fi or like the movie Dune that's coming out, like legendary pictures. If I could have started legendary pictures and made movies like Batman movies and things like that. Um, yeah. The trailer for Dune is insane. So good. It's big, so good. Yeah, and I'm a big Pink Boy fan. So then the fact that they, like, I was like, I could have done that. I would have put a part of the moon song in that trailer. And I think I just like creative people. I don't see myself as a super creative person, but I definitely see myself as someone who is really inspired by art and emotions and people's ability to, you know, move. And I think that's why I like entrepreneurs. Right. I don't know how to make money in that world. I'm sure people do, but I don't. No. Takes a lot of money too. (laughs) Yeah. 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 A lot of money. I would definitely just try to start something like that letters and do movies like Dune. And that's awesome. The third question is who is someone that you look up to and why? Well, I mentioned him earlier, but the real kind of godfather of TTV is a guy named Jimmy Blanchard. And he was the CEO that built Tesis and Synovus. And uh, yeah, no, he's been, he's probably the person that I've learned the most about leadership and there are times literally when I have decisions and, and there's a saying is, says, what would Jesus Christ do? Like he was in this, and I always think, I was like, what would Jimmy do if he was, you know, I really refer back to like, how do I think he would react? But there's so many things he taught me. I think just about being a leader, he talked about two kinds of people. There's lifters and there's leaners. And for every person that's lifting and building something in our world, there's 10 people that are leaning and just picking on it and breaking it down. And he had this real philosophy about you're, you work for your employees, not the other way around. And I've really, we've really taken that to heart at TTV in our culture. We don't see it like the entrepreneur works for us. It's like we work for them. Like our job is to help make them successful because if they're successful, we're successful. So many things I learned from them. Like don't try to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. Just be the guy the smartest people want to be in the room with. I really took that to heart. In the venture business, everybody wants to be the smartest guy in the room. And I mm-hmm. see that a lot of board meetings and it plays well to just lean back and not fight and just be more of a listener and a supporter. The fourth and final question is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Which it sounds like <laughs> you also answered in the third question. He, yeah, he gave me tons and beyond business is the same advice we've all heard, just being in the moment and being present. And when I was first starting my career, there was a philosophical existential kind of discussion around being in the moment, but it was more like your whole career really isn't some 30 year span of doing stuff for 40 or 50. It's just one moment at a time. When I was younger, I started thinking, it's not about what I'm going to do over the next 20 years. It's what I'm going to do today. And then it adds up. Right. So, so I love the saying, if you're thinking about the past, you're living with regret. And if you're thinking about the future, you're living with fear. If you're in the moment, you're, you're living life. So I, I do think that's the best advice. I'm not perfect at it, nor does anyone. I remember I was whining one time about some things that were going on during the financial crisis. And one of our good friends, Guy Mark Monroe said, I'm whining about it. Do something, do something about it. And it correlates with me about in the moment. 
just act on it right now today. Do it. And if you do that every day, one moment at a time, it just it adds up and it's not hard. You don't have to go plan some strategic map for how you're going to be successful. You just do it one moment at a time. And every time something comes up, just stay focused on that. Well, Gardner, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate the time you spent and all your advice on fintech. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for asking me and uh, I'll talk to you soon. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. Thank you.